Amen. Thanks, worship team. Morning, Hillcrest family. Man, come on, second service. Well done. First service were slackers this morning. They were still sleeping. Glad you guys are here. Uh, man, thankful for you guys. And, uh, and if you look in your bulletin, your worship folder, you're going to see an insert uh, for something we talked about last week. We talked about this wonderfully made partnership. You heard from Megan last week share what it would look like for us as a community to partner and serve uh, our neighborhood, our educators, and the Department of Special Needs over at Oregon High School and Intermediate, Middle School, and Elementary. And so uh, we're partnering, I want to say, with about six of the seven schools and supporting them. And so you'll see on the backside uh, a list of different things. Because on September 3rd, every fall, we do a community Sunday where we look ahead to the coming year. And, uh, and so it's one service at 9 a.m. And then following at 10, we, we eat together, have some pancakes. And so on September 3rd, we'd love you to bring those supplies. And we would love to be able to pray over them as they are deployed to the school district. And, and it's not just about doing something or serving people. It is about relationship. It is about developing and cultivating relationships in our neighborhood. Because we believe God's a relational God. And so around here for us... We believe that God has revealed himself primarily through his word. It's a way that we get to encounter the living God through, through his word that has been revealed to us. And we've been studying uh, the gospel of Luke. And so we believe God actually inspired Luke to write these very words. And so through Luke, through a guy like us who wrote down the very words of God, now we 2,000 years later, get to read his words, but not just an ancient document or text, but actually believe God speaking in and through his word. But here, here's our fear around here sometimes, is that there's one step removed from us hearing from God. We become second-handers. And, and hear me say, I love, I mean, it's an unreal privilege that you guys allow me to share uh, the hope and truth and joy of the gospel but the desire is always to move, to become first-handers, to hear from God through his word for ourselves. And it would be much like this if, if Willow or Gus turned to me and said, hey, you know, David, do you know Casey loves you? And to which I would say, yes. And is it true that Willow and Gus tell me that about Casey? Yes, that's true. But how much more? If I actually hear from Casey for myself, David, I love you. And that's all we're doing around here. We long to hear from God for ourselves. Oh, precious is the flow that's made us white as snow. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. And so we've been in the gospel of Luke. We've been working through the gospel of Luke and, and we've moved from the entrance of the king to the teachings of the king. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount and now we are in this journey of the king where he turned and he set his face to Jerusalem. And so this coming Sunday, we're actually gonna be up at Camp Fairwood. And so with love, <laughs> thank you, Aaron. Aaron, I'm glad you're here. That's what made second service and first service different. Aaron is here with us in second. <laughs> we're gonna be up at Camp Fairwood this week. And so I hope as many of you guys are willing to join, it is the best expression of a multi-generational church family. And if you are unable to join, there's going to be a gathering 9 a.m. in the lower lobby 
here on Sunday. So if you're, if you're up to join and you just want to join here, you're not coming up, you want to stay here, there is a gathering, 9 a.m., not 10.30, 9 a.m. in our lower lobby. And if you're not heading up to Camp Fairwood, I would encourage you on the way out, grab one of these packets because we are continuing in the journey of the king up at Camp Fairwood. And I would encourage you, grab one of these to journey along. There's some opportunities, some questions. If you are going to Camp Fairwood, don't grab one. You can grab it while you're up there. And if you're not coming on Sunday up at Camp Fairwood or here Sunday at Hillcrest, on the last page of the packet, it says, God, what are you inviting me into? I would encourage you to seek transformation, to pursue someone to have breakfast with or coffee or lunch that is yet to treasure Jesus and through your interaction might take one more step towards Jesus. So excited to see you guys at Camp Fairwood. And, uh, and in this movement of the journey of the king, can anyone believe it's already August? Man, I was talking to someone this morning. They said, David, winter's coming. I'm like, no, no you can't say that. It's too, it's too early. You can't say winter's coming. But we've been moving through this summer on this turn, the journey of the king, where Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. We, we watched that video of, of the softball girls, the Oklahoma players that declared eyes up, all in. When you follow Jesus, you are all in. And Jesus then says, if you follow me, you go. And he sends out the 72. And we talked about who's got it better than us. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But how much more that our names are written in the book of life. Who's got it better than us? But in chapter 11, it felt like Jesus has now started just piling up the warnings. So this morning is going to be a little heavier. We're going to be, we're going to be Entering into a topic doesn't necessarily always get covered in Western evangelical Christianity, but we just go wherever the text takes us. And so chapter 11, a little heavier, but Jesus has been just setting warning after warning to these Pharisees. Here's what he said in that 29 to 36 about seeking a sign in him being the light. He said, the eye of your lamp of your body, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. That's positive, right? We want the light in us, and how beautiful if the light is in us. Our whole body is light. But just as quickly, he hits his listeners with a warning. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Ryan did a phenomenal job last week walking us through the woes. What great sorrow awaits. And what struck me, I was reminded of a quote from a friend of mine back in California The Pharisees were self-deceived. And so Jesus is warning us not to be deceived. This quote from my friend, self-deception is almost impossible to self-diagnose. I need other people in my life helping me walk this journey of faith. As Jesus calls us to follow him, I don't do it alone. It is a team sport. And he keeps calling me further up. And now... With that idea of light, he's now going to talk to a crowd, but specifically his disciples. Here's what he says. In the meantime, same space, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The outside looks like light, but on the inside, much like 
yeast leavens the bread, inflates the bread, so are their lives. The insides don't match the outsides. And then back to that light comment, he gives a warning. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Now, why is he giving us that warning? This morning, it's going to get a little heavier because he's going to tell us, make sure the light in you is light because there's coming a day when all that we've thought and done will be revealed. There's coming a day when what is in you is going to be revealed. Here's what he says. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So there's a, a warning. Make sure the light's in you. Why? I've heard this preached, and I don't think it's an illegitimate application, that there's a day coming when your life will now become like a movie. And and all those outward things you did are now just going to be made public. That, That all those things done now become visible. And I don't think that's an illegitimate application. But to whom is he speaking this about? His disciples. What's the warning he just told them in comparison to the Pharisees? Their outside looks good, but inside is not. There's coming a day when the inside is actually going to be revealed. So make sure that your insides are good. Make sure the light is in you because there's coming a day when all of that will be revealed. And how are we to respond to make sure the light is in us? He's going to give us a counterintuitive truth this morning for producing more of that visible light. He's going to give us a counterintuitive truth. You guys know what counterintuitive truths are? All right, now you're acting more like first service. You guys know what a counterintuitive truth is? No, thank you, Carter or Lana or Katie, whoever that was that said that. <laughs> Counter to something that would seem apparent and yet the opposite is actually true. So uh, how do you put out water? Or how do you put out a fire? <laughs> oh, man. How do, how do you put out a fire? Water. And yet the counterintuitive truth is do not use water to put out a grease fire that would be terrible that'd be a terrible idea if you're trying to put out that and has that ever happened to anybody in here thank you john john were you the culprit or was it someone you knew that did it it was a friend of yours right okay (laughs) but put put out a grease fire not with water counterintuitive truth another one we know this one jesus says this it's it's more blessed to give than to receive we understand that that actually it's not about accumulating. People think, well, if, isn't it better to have? Isn't it better to get? Jesus said, no, it's, it actually is better. And people feel this. They just know this. People, it's better to give than to receive. When you give something to someone, it actually starts to elicit joy in your heart. This morning, how do you make sure the light's in you? 
How do you make sure as you go through life, your insides match your outsides? He's going to give us this truth. The way you live a fearless life is actually by fearing. The way you make sure the light's in you and you live fearlessly to the world around you is by fearing God. Here's what he's going to tell us. The reality is many people articulate following Jesus, but on the insides don't look like Jesus. So Jesus has been warning the crowds and the Pharisees of the eternal cost of this. There's coming a day when your insides will no longer be hidden. The only way to be safe before God is to acknowledge Jesus above anyone and anything. So a little heavier this morning, but Jesus keeps just pressing us to make sure that we are following him and it gets expressed in our lives. So pray with me and we will, uh, we will dig into the text this morning. God, you are so good. Thank you for who you are, what you are doing in our lives and, and inviting us in to what it means to truly fear you, producing a fearlessness in, in everything else we do in this life. So whatever might be Coming to our minds or our hearts, even in that idea, may we believe that you are stirring something in us to what you have for us as we enter into Luke 12. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So where he starts in this flow, he says, don't fear anything or anyone. Here's what he says. And we'll start back at verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed to the housetops. There's coming a day when whatever's in you is going to be revealed. And so I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't fear. (laughs) There's coming a day, whatever in you, so so live with fearlessness. And he goes to, I think, the highest place he can go in life of things we would fear, which is, don't fear those who all they can do is kill the body, and after that, hey, have nothing more they can do. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for the encouragement, right? I mean, you're like, man, so what's the encouragement? People can only kill us. <laughs> That you ought not fear anything in this life because at the very most, someone can do all they can do in life. The highest thing, all they can do is kill you. How freeing, right? Oh, wonderful. So if that's the highest, what fits under that? I just imagine everything else. Torture would be a longer progression towards that. What do you fear? And torture might be one of them. But everything else falls under that category. Warning to make sure the light's in us, he says, you don't need to fear. How do I know what I fear? It's usually accompanied by a few different emotions or expressions. Either some type of physical distress. Maybe an emotional trauma that starts to stir something up in us. Anxiety starts to climb when I start thinking about this or anger frustration with the situation about maybe an outcome or perception 
or I just freeze up and I, I can't do anything because I'm just so overcome by whatever this fear might be. What are, you, what are you fearing in this life? Jesus says, don't fear man or anything because the worst they can do is kill you. So can anyone then imagine the very next place he's going to go? So fear God. <laughs> How might I live with that fearless? attitude in all of life no matter what comes my way fear God why here's what he says I tell you my friends do not fear do not fear those who can kill the body and after that they have nothing more they can do to you but I will warn you I will warn you whom to fear fear him who after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That in order to live a fearless life with greater confidence and greater security, the counterintuitive idea is we do fear. We just make sure we're fearing the right thing. Now, now this again is a heavy idea. I understand there's a variety of people that might have different doctrines on this. I'll share the three, and we hold to the traditional view. But here's the three places some people might go when they read this text from Jesus, and they'll try and excuse what he's actually talking about, and I think that's an inappropriate expression. The traditional view, each person is judged once and for all after death, giving eternal life in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. What you choose in this life matters and has implications, and Jesus is trying to say that. He's trying to tell people that this isn't usually what we talk about in evangelical Western Christianity, right? This, this is maybe reserved for those Baptists back in the 50s and 60s, right? We, we've, we want to talk about the happy things. And yet, this is what Jesus shares. Make sure the light in you matches the outside. Others want to believe that when you die, because we all understand death comes. There was a funeral on Friday, and I love Ecclesiastes 7 says this, attend a funeral, why? Because there's more to learn at a funeral than there is in life because it gives you a picture on how to live life and the end that comes for us all. Ecclesiastes 7, it's a profound idea. Annihilationism says, when we die, that's it. We just kind of vanish into the ether and nothing happens. That's a little more comforting thought. Gives us an excuse if, well, I don't, I don't need to choose Jesus because nothing really is waiting And then the one that progressive Christianity is pushing lately is this, that all people will eventually be saved. That that the reality is, hey, it doesn't matter because God is a loving God and, and, and that will continue. And he wants all to come even after they die. And so for us around here, there's an urgency that Jesus, we feel in Jesus' words because he says there is coming a day when all things will be revealed. And so make sure the light is in you. And so one of the questions I love asking people when I grab lunch or coffee with them, and usually men, because I'm grabbing lunch and coffee with men, uh, and I'm glad you ladies also get together from time to time at the church office. Anyway, man, one of the questions I'll often ask people is, is when did you first come to that realization uh, of just your need for God, your need for a savior, of, of, the, of the depravity of your life 
the fear of hell. When, when did that come? When can you remember that time where sin was so present? Because there is a fear that leads us to faith. There is a sense of God's holiness, my sin, a reality beyond this life that that ought to cause dread and despair and terror, pressing us and pushing us passionately to the only solution, namely Jesus. There is life in his name. And what Jesus is now telling us is there's a fear that continues in faith. It flows from faith. There's still an awareness of God's holiness, of my sin, of an eternity apart from him. But rather than terror and dread and despair, what does that fear actually produce? Humility, awe and gratitude. Oh, precious is the flow that's made my life white as snow. That he loves us. And we begin passionately embracing that solution and we start seeking that transformation for others. And so then, where does he go next? Back where he started. Don't fear. Because all that the worst that could happen is they'll kill you. What else could be bad in this life? That's the worst thing that could happen. So don't just fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the soul. And that actually is going to produce that light shining out of you. It's going to produce a fearlessness. Here's what he says. So fear not. And I love his reasoning. Because the verse he's about to share is not often quoted in this context. Tell me if this verse sounds familiar. So fear not. Why? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And doesn't God know the amount of hairs on your head? So fear not. Because God knows you and your story. So fear not. Why? In God's eyes, aren't you more important than sparrows? Why would you fear? God loves you. By faith, he loves you. Not often it feels like where that verse gets quoted. Why ought we not fear? God loves us more than the smallest creature. We're far more significant in his eyes. He loves us. Why fear him who can only kill the body? If the God who can send you to hell loves you, what do you have to fear? Fear him and have no fear in the rest of life. But he continues with this weighty idea. Fearing God frees us to boldly acknowledge Jesus. Here's what he says. Fear not, are you not more valuable than sparrows? And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So if you have confidence that when you stand and you see that light shining in you, Jesus acknowledges that, that actually frees us up to not have any other worry. Because there's confidence in how I stand before Jesus when all things are revealed. But then he just as quickly adds a little warning. 
Denying Jesus isn't good. Because just as confident as I might be in that moment, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So if you don't live with that fearlessness, it would appear that you're fearing men more than God. You're fearing the people that all they can do is kill you more than the God who can send you to hell. That would not be a good sign. And then he continues. So acknowledging Jesus fearlessly is evidence of Jesus' light being in us. When we're willing to acknowledge him before others and before the situations we go to on our Monday to Saturday demonstrates the lights in us, demonstrates we fear God more than man or anything else in this life. Here's what he says. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, who's he speaking to again? His disciples. Think this is about to be in their future in the next 10 years? And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. So if there is a fear of God in your life, it radically impacts how you interact with every situation around you. What's that fear that starts to creep up in your heart? What might it look like to increasingly demonstrate a fear in God? But there was one phrase in there. Did you guys catch it? Verse 10. Is someone willing to read verse 10 for us? It's a classic phrase. (laughs) Thank you for smiling. I appreciate it. What's verse 10? And we're in chapter 12 of Luke. I don't know what page it is on your Bibles. But what's verse 10 say? Because if you grew up in Catholic faith, this might be one of those things, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. What does verse 10 say? And we will wait. I believe in you, second service. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blesses against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Yeah. This whole heavy text that he's just bombarding us with and warning us about the light. And then he throws this phrase in there that might cause some of us to go, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, the unforgivable sin. If I I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? And so I imagine someone asking the question, have I committed the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? To which for me, if you're asking that question, would lead me to believe you're not. If you're actually asking, am I, am I right with God? Am I appropriately fearing him? Does he sit on the throne of my heart? I, I long for him to sit on the throne of my heart and I don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That would seem to indicate that you are longing the chase after Jesus. That unpardonable sin seems to connect to those that for their life, they just reject this Jesus and they want nothing to do with him. And so, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Those that just live a life counter to believing Jesus sits on the throne of their heart. Acknowledging Jesus fearlessly is evidence of Jesus' light being in us. And so the question is, Monday's coming, right? Monday is waiting for us tomorrow as we go back to our homes, our neighborhoods, and our world. How might we live? 
Because maybe for many of us, torture isn't right around the corner. But I get inspired when I look back through years of church history for whom that was the case. Does the name William Tyndale mean anything to anybody? So he was significant in bringing the Bible from Latin into English. And for that, he was considered a heretic. For longing to bring the Bible into accessible language, the church wanted him dead. And William Tyndale lovingly stood and said, Following Christ is worth it. My fear is not of those who can kill the body. Here's what he's quoted as saying. William Tyndale tried to get the king of England to allow the Bible to be printed in English so the people could actually read it instead of Latin, for which he was declared a heretic. Here's the final words. As a noose is around his neck and he's about to be burned, the final words given to him by the Holy Spirit spoken at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice were reported as, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he died. Because he wasn't fearing those who could just kill the body, but fearing him who would kill the soul, producing a fearlessness with whatever he encountered in life. There's another guy that absolutely floors me. You guys know the Apostle John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes it feels like in in our world, we think, well, there was the apostles and then there's us. And we forget that there was like 2,000 years of church history. So the apostle John, same call, make disciples and make disciples. Someone John invested his life in was a guy named Polycarp. He lived in that first following Jesus. He was was investing in Turkey, Asia Minor. And, uh, And at 86, being chased and hounded, Christians at the time, people of the way, being accused of being atheists for not following Roman gods. And so he's being asked to recant his faith in this risen Savior, Jesus. Here's what he says at the age of 86. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And he says these words. 86 years have I served him and he had done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The conversation goes on as recorded to which the proconsul again says, I'll have you burned. To which Polycarp responds, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. I get encouraged when I hear of other faithful people throughout the centuries that lived with a fearlessness. Why? Because they appropriately fear God. There was a situation recently, right, where you would imagine people living in fear because they're unaware of what the future will hold for them. And so rightly living in fear for those that treasure Christ. As we go through our Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, does our life look different? And so the question for me that, that, that immediately comes to my mind, who, who sits on the throne of your heart? As you enter this Monday, have you answered the question, who sits on the throne of your heart? Who is that? One indicator of how you know, what causes you fear? 
What's that thing that still, when you wake up and go to bed, still is clamoring for more attention than it deserves? Do you fear God more than that? And so, you might be seeing that fear leading to faith. Or, that might be prompting you in a fear flowing from faith that actually starts to say as much as that thing is causing your attention and affections to rise, you treasure Jesus more. And so this should look familiar. We do this often around here. The wages of sin? Death. The free gift of God? Eternal life. And Jesus, faith in him, crosses that bridge. Fear of what the alternative would be that actually leads to a fearlessness as we go through this life, trusting in that free gift. And so what do we do? Confront that fear. Identify it. What is that? Can you name it and wrestle with what that is? And sometimes the tendency in this journey is to then focus all our energy there when we confront that fear. The way we confront that fear around here is we actually fight for more joy in Christ. We actually long for more of him and fight for our joy to be found in him of anything else this life has to offer. And so how might we fight for that joy? First, we recognize we are always in a fight for joy that God intends us to experience. He intends us to experience that joy in him. And so we fight for more joy in him. Is there a fear of how that medical treatment is going to turn out? When I go into that doctor's office and I'm unaware of what the solution might be. In a relationship that just feels tentative and precarious and I'm unaware of of how it's going to turn out. My finances just feel so overwhelming that I'm unsure of how I'm going to move forward. What's that fear? And yet here's the call to fight for more joy. And our circumstances seem to heighten the awareness of that battle. When those circumstances are most present and the fear of the uncertainty of what actually might happen, it actually heightens me to go, what am I fearing in this life? And the essence of our battle then is to see God for who he is. Aren't you more valuable than sparrows? Doesn't the God of the universe know how many hairs are on your head? And we trust him. Because he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And so we fight for our joy and we pray with desperate dependence for God's help. God, help me in this moment. I seem to be fearing more things other than you. Help me in this moment. I'm desperate and dependent for your help. And then we pursue time with others who are fighting for their joy in Christ to make sure the light's in us so we're not self-deceived. That's why life groups around here are so important. That's why serve teams are so vital. I need other people in my life. And I long to hear for God through his word from myself as a first-hander. David, I love you. Is that heavy? You guys feeling that this morning? Oh, man. Just imagine sitting in that for a week going, oh, you should have damned me. <laughs> What does God owe us? We often say nothing. And hear me say, I go, nothing, doesn't owe me a thing, but for one thing. 
death. And yet, the fearlessness that comes from believing he's ransomed my life from that, what, is it, what, what happens? I actually want to invite others into that too. So that when we stand before Jesus someday and all things are revealed, when the insides now become light, we actually love sharing the joy we have with others. We're some beggars that have found some bread and we want to share it with others. And so we've crossed over. Around here, we try and back up the train one step to be engaged in our homes, our neighborhoods, and spark curiosity to elicit a desire to think of things beyond this life, things more important, more significant. And then it's not just about finding life with Christ, but it's the ongoing journey of spiritual transformation. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. And so I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of that fear. The thing that's causing you anxiety or worry or anger or sometimes paralyzes you. Jesus says, are you not more important than sparrows? Don't I know the hairs on your head by faith and trust in me and fearing me? It actually produces a fearlessness in this life. So may I pray that over us as we keep taking more steps towards that healthy fear producing a fearlessness. Jesus, you are so good. Thank you for who you are, your work in our life. We long to experience more of that freedom from whatever might be challenging us. And you promise the way to find freedom and fearlessness is actually healthy fear in you. Fill us more with your spirit so that we can have a greater recognition of the depth of love freeing us up for our Monday to Saturday, always for your glory we pray. Amen.